G'day and welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. But today I would like to introduce you to Janet Lawson, who is doing a PhD in the health promotion stream within kinesiology and health studies under the supervision of Dr. Amy Latimer-Chung. Welcome to Grad Chat, Janet. Thanks, Colette. Thanks for having me. Now, I must tell everyone I've been hounding Janet for quite a while <laughs> and I think it was back at one of the boot camp dissertation boot camps we had and I realized what your thesis topic was and I went oh my goodness I so have to talk to you about that and of course you weren't ready at that stage which is understandable but I've got your back so, <laughs> so thank you for letting me hound you to come on the show no problem. <laughs> so it was, and the reason I wanted Janet on, of course, in fact, right now it's really topical, <laughs> this, this yeah. subject we're going to be talking about, because if you haven't noticed, the Winter Olympics are on, and soon after that, of course, is the Paralympics, Paral Winter Olympics. So the Winter Olympics are on now with the Paralympics following. So having Janet on our show is extremely fortuitous. You know, we all know training to that level takes a lot of dedication and training, but how do you get people started in a sport in the first place is always, always my question. You know, we have sports have rules and regulations to make the sport safe, equitable and enjoyable. Of course, that also means making sure people have access to similar equipment, playing fields and indoor facilities. So for a person with a disability, however, there is one more step that comes into play, and that is classification, which brings me to Janet's research topic of how to increase participation rates by improving people's experiences with parasport. So before we get into the main questions, Janet, what does that statement mean and where is the term classification in all of that? Mm -hmm. That's a great place to start. So I think a lot of people don't necessarily know what classification is when we talk about the Paralympics. The easiest analogy is if we think about men's and women's races or weight classes in boxing, those are all classification systems that you use to make sport fair and equitable. And in parasport, because we're getting athletes with very diverse impairments, you might have an athlete with a high level spinal cord injury and somebody else with an amputation or a neuromuscular disorder. The classification system that's been developed is made to group athletes based on how their impairment or their disability actually affects the way that they participate in sport. So we're looking at grouping athletes based on their functional abilities to make sure that sport is equal or the, the competitive outcomes are the result of their actual performance rather than somebody having an advantage based on their body alone. You know, that's, that's a great summary. Thank you very much. But I also remember, I remember I, I, I used to work for Basketball Australia and of course one of our national teams were our wheelchair basketball teams and with athletes in wheelchair basketball, they're all sitting in a wheelchair, but they all have different disabilities. Mm-hmm. And even within wheelchair basketball, there's a classification within a classification in terms of a regulation within that classification. Like there were so many, your disability provided points as to how bad your disability was. And, and 
only so many points were allowed on the court at one time. So it makes it even harder. So it's not just the fact that you have a disability. Sometimes it's the the level of that disability within the sport. Yeah, so classification, and that's really the kind of the heart of where my work came in. Um, classification is necessary to participate in para sport. You need to get classified if you hope to compete at like the provincial, national, or international level just to know where you fit within the system. But then it can actually really influence what sports athletes choose to participate in or how competitive they can be. If you take something like wheelchair basketball, if you're one of the higher classifications, if you have a lot of functional ability and you look at the national team in your country and say, oh, they already have a few athletes in that classification, that's maybe there's not a lot of room for me. It's going to be really tough to make the team. Whereas this other sport, there's no one competing in my classification right now. It's not to say that it wouldn't still require the same amount of effort and dedication and training to compete at a high level, but there might be more opportunities for you. Or conversely, maybe there's no classification for you in the sport that you love, that you grew up playing, and then you acquired a disability. And that's not really an option if you want to look at sport competitively. So it can influence where people go with sport and what sports they actually get involved in. And I guess you kind of answered that that second question that I have here is why is classification important? We, we alluded to it earlier in the fact that provides some equity mm-hmm. on the on the playing field or court or wherever it's swimming pool wherever mm-hmm. it is but how is it different than just having a men's and women's competition or as you mentioned weight classes such as in sports like boxing yeah I mean I think it's really not that different at the end of the day because it is just meant to provide opportunities for competition you know we can get into kind of the age-old argument or of are women as strong and as fast as men? And you can have differing takes on that. But at the end of the day, we organize competition separately to give the fairest of opportunities given the constraints of sporting rules. But where classification comes in to be important, I think as a viewer, someone that might tune into the Paralympics between March 4th and 13th, is in understanding that all of the athletes that we're watching have been assessed and have a marker that indicates they're competing fairly. So if you watch something like the wheelchair basketball is in the summer program, not the winter Olympics, but watch something like that. And then you see an athlete get out of their chair and walk away at the end. You know, I've heard people say before, oh, like, that's not fair. Why are they playing? But it's not as simple as that. We need to look at the classifications and say, you know, what is the impact of this athlete's impairment on their sport performance? There is a fit for them. So it's not as simple as necessarily saying, what can I see that athlete do. So we're talking about classification and I understand why we need it, but I can understand how the classification can be even tighter the higher up you go. But there's certain people that do that classification to determine. Is it the doctors that determine the classification or is it doctors and some other people that determine the classification? Because if you have too many people involved, how can Joe Blow at grassroots, I mean, do they have to be classified? And if so, where do they go to determine? Yeah, so starting at the top and then working down, the International Paralympic Committee or the IPC organizes classification. They have a classification code that any of the sports that are involved in the Paralympic program have to follow. So with that, at that international level, they're your as an athlete, you're going to meet with a panel of classifiers prior to a competition. Um, And those are usually doctors, physiotherapists, um, sometimes they're sport experts. So it could be a former coach or a former athlete. Every competition? No. So they have to meet at least once in their career at the international level. They'll get assessed. They do a variety of tests, um, either 
what's referred to as a bench test, often like physiotherapy type movements where they'll do range of motion exercises. They might watch the athlete in competition or going through like a warm up prior to competition, and they'll give the athlete their classification. For most sports, you would do that once, you receive your classification. If your impairment's not gonna change, you're set more or less. If your impairment could change over time, for example, with really young athletes or someone with a degenerative condition, they'll flag you for review and then you have to go through that process again. If we go down towards like the national level or provincial competitions, that's really going to depend on where you are and what sport you're competing in. So here in Canada, the Canadian Paralympic Committee organizes classification in the same way that the IPC does. In other countries that don't have very well-developed parasport systems, that's not going to be the case. They might just let anybody compete and then you get an athlete could show up to, you know, a world championships or a, a really important international race. And they might have no idea what classification they're going to be because they haven't had that exposure in their country. Right, right. And, and then down the next level again, grassroots? Yeah, grassroots, you'll see it introduced in Canada. Um, it's not necessarily something that's binding at that level. Often, if you take like swimming or wheelchair or basketball, they might have a classifier, someone who's involved in the sport who can give you a ballpark classification. And you'll go kind of go through the process at a tournament or at a competition. It wouldn't stand internationally. That international level classification is the only thing that counts in the eyes of the IPC. So they want to see you go through that really rigorous process that they've had their had oversight of, over. Which, which makes total sense. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I, like I said, because of my involvement with wheelchair basketball, I got to know some of this. And I thought, oh, my goodness, it's a full-time job for someone to be able to classify people correctly and, yeah. and, and make sure Inter- that's working. Interestingly, though, it's not a full-time job. Classifiers are entirely volunteer-based. So we're getting, like, medical doctors to give up their weekends to travel around the globe, travel around the country, um, volunteering just to make parasport work and to, wow. to enable the competition structure. That's terrific. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that. No, that, that's terrific. Thank you. Wow. Take my hat off to all those people then because <laughs> it's hard work. So... Um, in terms of watching the Paralympics, what is important to know about classification for those who will be tuning in to watch the Paralympics over the coming weeks? Yeah, like I said, just the understanding that everything is meant to be equitable. So what you see isn't necessarily what the athlete is dealing with in terms of their impairment. Um, and then getting a sense of what each classification is. So if you're used to tuning into a sport and seeing like a, a Nordic ski race and it just being two different divisions, men's and women's. Um, taking a look beforehand, if you go to the IPC website and get a get a feel for what the different classifications might be, we'll add a lot of context to watching those races. So you'll have a better idea of, oh, here are the ambulatory athletes, the athletes that are standing but have an impairment in their leg. Here's the sit skiers. It'll give you a different sense of what's going on uh, rather than just tuning in and kind of going, oh, there's a bunch of people racing. You know, that person came in first, but I don't know why they came in first and why we're doing the race again. So getting a sense of what the classifications are for the sports you're interested in, I think adds a lot of uh, value to, to watching. Yeah. I, I For the Paralympic uh, winter sport people, you know, you look at what's, what's your ice hockey called on, on slide? Sledge hockey. Sle- sledge hockey, is it? Yeah. yeah. That looks so dangerous <laughs> when I see it and I, all I can think of is someone falling over and then getting ripped up by somebody else anything on ice I think is dangerous <laughs> so, yeah. 
I feel the same way just watching Able Body Talkie too. Well, that's true. That's very true. Yes, I can't stand up on my skates at all. Um, so what does, a, coming back to your research, because you're looking at how to increase participation rates by improving people's experiences para sport. I mean, to me, sport is this competitive sport and people work very, very hard. But at the end of the day, you really want to enjoy it. And to get people to the elite level, you need to make sure that people, when they first start out in a sport, are enjoying it. Well, you'd like to think they're enjoying it, not just doing it for the sake of it. You're hoping they're enjoying it because then they're more likely to want to improve and and get to the next level if that's what they they choose to do. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you increase participation rate is it easy in canada to go and find um, places that take on para sport whether it's olympic or summer Mm -hmm. um i think it's going to depend on whether you're in an urban center what sports are available but in terms of classification and the role that that can play in increasing participation i think there's two aspects to it so one is that classification is a condition of participation. So if we want to increase the number of athletes with disabilities that can participate in sport in Canada and improve their health outcomes through that, we need to have well-developed classification systems across all of the sports that are offered uh, to ensure that people are being appropriately challenged when they participate, that their competition isn't blowing them out of the water and that they feel like there's a fit for them. And then on the other hand, what I learned from my research and from my master's thesis is that classification itself can be such a challenging experience that that can deter people from continuing their participation. So once we've actually gotten athletes into the system, they might love the sport that they're participating in, but tracking down the medical documentation required to pursue an international classification can be really burdensome and frustrating or the classification experience itself can be really poor if they're dealing with a classifier who doesn't speak the same language as them, who really relies on medical terminology to describe their impairment and speaks in a demeaning way. And that can actually take athletes who are involved in sport and really excited about competing and want to represent Canada and deter them and, you know, end up long-term influencing their decision to leave sport. So we can look at participation again from that lens of, having a well-developed classification system as a condition of participation, and then ensuring that athletes have quality experiences with classification so that they stay in the system and that they want to keep participating. So are you saying right now it's not particularly good? I think in the best cases, classification is a very neutral experience. It's something that athletes go, oh yeah, I had to get classified. I showed up. I asked my coach questions and they told me this. And then that was that. In the worst cases that I've heard, athletes have been physically manipulated into positions that extended their natural range of motion. They sustained injuries. They felt talked down to and demoralized by it. Like their disability was like overtly on display above and beyond what it needed to be and that it was embarrassing. And when we think about sport, you know, a big conversation now is around safe sport and creating safe spaces for athletes. And if we're putting an athlete who's potentially young, who's nervous, who's trying to make their career in sport in a room with highly educated people reviewing their bodily function and we're not giving them recourse to ask questions or to participate in a meaningful way in that conversation, that can be really damaging to the athlete's psyche. So it sounds like there's two parts that we need to do here to help with classification in general. One is 
to educate the athlete a little bit more about the process and it is okay to ask questions and you know mm-hmm. and to say no you go for instance you talked about range of motion I mean they shouldn't go people who know shouldn't go past the range of motion right <laughs> and then mm-hmm. the other side is is training the people who are doing the classification on that everyone's an individual and not everyone's going to understand <laughs> medical jargon or terminology <laughs> that most of us don't understand you know they need to put it in more simpler terms that we can understand the, the whole process and make it to make us feel comfortable plus also understanding people have cultural differences or age comes as a factor mm-hmm. uh, gender could come as a factor mm-hmm. um, and they need to be trained how to to do all of that so are you looking at both those areas or you or no or <laughs> uh, yeah so my my doctoral work now is looking at that education piece I haven't focused it in specifically. We have a a partnered project. So I'm working with the Canadian Paralympic Committee and we'll be bringing on other stakeholders to get their perspectives and opinions as well. But what I kind of think might end up happening is one education piece for athletes that might be video or a webinar or something like that, teaching them kind of the basics of classification and what their rights are within classification. So who do they ask questions to? When is an appropriate time? That idea. And then something else geared towards classifiers. And like I mentioned, the IPC governs classification. But I think there's a lot of work we can do around what I'd almost call bedside manner and those interpersonal Mm -hmm. skills. At the end of the day, the classifiers are doing their job. They know how to do these assessments, but we can certainly improve their interpersonal skills and the way that they relate to athletes with disabilities through the language that they use and their their, um, their body language. And I think that that would go a long way in improving athletes' experiences. I think the education part for athlete themselves is going to be important, but I also are you also looking at different levels of that education because a kid, kids' understanding or acceptance of things might be different to say a young adult, mm-hmm. and also yeah, it depends yeah. on the experience perhaps of their disability. Do they have it as a kid or as from birth? Or is it something that's come later in, in their lives? And so they're adjusting to that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I hope that that's something that comes out from this next stage of my research is figuring out how do we tailor these messages to different audiences? Because again, like you've mentioned, depending on if it's a child or someone with an acquired or a congenital disability, their experience is going to be very diverse. And then within a single sport, you have all of those diverse experiences. So it's not even so simple as to say, oh, we can make this educational piece for Paranordic and that'll be great, that'll cover everything. If you have an athlete who is blind and an athlete with a spinal cord injury, their experiences and their the information that they need to know might vary significantly. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that was a really good uh, example there because of the, the blind sports, um, people with visual impairment. So ultimately at the end, you're early on, you've looked at the classification system, you looked at the different sports, you looked at different levels of sport. Mm-hmm. Are you hoping, well, what are you hoping comes out of this? Something that uh, just in Canada we can use, something that can be used worldwide? Or, And I guess I should have asked, have you looked at other systems around the world that are doing classification in terms mm-hmm. of the interaction of the athlete and the classifier. Have you have you looked at other ones as part of your study? Maybe we should start there. 
That's a great question. So as a part of my master's research, I exclusively interviewed Canadian athletes who had been classified internationally. So I was looking at that one level. However, those athletes are, were able to reflect back to like their first participation in para-sport. Um, and then I also interviewed classifiers and I was able to recruit an international sample of classifiers that work internationally. So their perspective is really where we were able to pull in some discussion around um, athletes from, say, countries in the global south who have less developed uh, classification systems and what that athlete classifier interaction looks like in comparison to, say, a Canadian athlete. Uh, certainly long term, doing more research there and to see what differences there are or maybe developing some sort of framework for how to uh, implement and then upscale a classification system where that's lacking would be fantastic so that we can improve classification, not only in Canada and those experiences for athletes, but in other countries as well. I think the other thing that I keep coming back to is it's very easy to think about the elite athlete. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very much a grassroots kind of, I mean, I love the elite stuff. I watch it all the time, but grassroots to me is really, really important. And, and you were talking about, you know, increasing participation rates. Well, the mm -hmm. whole process of enjoyment is not just the game but it's the surroundings and in this case classification and then the surrounding what happens within that sport you know is it a cordial sport or is it there's a lot of those you know ugly parents as we call them back home uh, you know which can put can put you know young athletes off and things like that but the, the next thing though then of course is the particularly in Canada with you know we're a big country we're really spread out of you know from it's easy to get some of this stuff and participation in uh, urban areas but it's those rural areas and you know there must there could be some lovely little athletes out there who mm -hmm. are clearly wanting to be able to join in but have not been able to how do we reach out to those or train or train people and, and this, these videos that we can train people within the local communities to help with some of this Mm -hmm. Certainly living in a rural area can be a barrier to participation because we see increased costs and time invested in travel to and from practice or to competition. And that's where something like wheelchair basketball is a great example. In Canada, it's an integrated sport. So I myself am able-bodied, but I actually used to play wheelchair basketball. Right. And that's because in Canada, the classification system reflects able-bodied individuals as being kind of at that top of the classification chart. So that it's still equal, everybody can participate, but it's accounted for in the points that they take up on the court. That's something that could be adopted for other sports so that smaller communities who maybe only have a few athletes with a impairment who want to participate in the sport can then broaden that sport to their classmates, to their community members, right. and they all compete and play together in an equitable way. Otherwise, I think what we've seen from the pandemic is that maybe doing things online is a great way to provide coaching skills to athletes participating in individual sports remotely or things like that. So I think improving participation for those that don't, you know, just live in the Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver's of Canada is certainly high on the priority list. Yeah, because I find it fascinating here in Canada. I, I'm used to, because I'm from Australia, and the sports system there is basically through the club system mm -hmm. and then going to the national, whereas here it's more through the school system. You do have some clubs, um, mm -hmm. but the school system seems to have top top billing, so to speak, to get into the next levels or higher levels. 
-hmm. And uh, you'd think with that, with all the schools, but of course, you know, it depends on the size of the school. But if you had a club within the a certain region, that might be easier to, to do that sort of thing. But particularly, there's, there's some beautiful recreation centres around the country that it would be mm -hmm. great to see some of this, more of this happening. So I wish yeah. you the best of luck with all the classification. I'm, I'll be interested to see how that turns out because I think it's going to be invaluable to those athletes who really do want to participate at the highest levels that they can um, and make it more, like you said, make it more enjoyable that just going through the classification isn't a put off mm -hmm. for them, which, which is great. But what I'd like to go on now to, because we've still got a bit of time, which is fantastic, not a lot, but actually did quite well on this. Uh, you do quite a few of extracurriculars and I know a lot of people, a lot of students in their kinesio in kinesiology and health studies participate in a lot of other th different things as well and I don't know if it's the title of the of the school I don't know <laughs> but you're also a personal trainer in Rev Dot, which I know is an outreach program that uh, School of Kinesiology and Health Studies have been doing for a long time now mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that and why you got involved with that although it looks pretty obvious <laughs> yeah, so RevDip was one of the reasons that I chose to come to Queens for uh, my master's and to work with Dr. Latimer Chung. It's a community-based exercise program, so adults living with mobility impairments uh, typically would come into the gym twice a week and just participate in a weight training program. And it's been built into a few of the courses for undergraduates offered here in the SKHS. Oh, that's good. Uh, so undergraduate students and volunteers help take participants through their program, adjusting weight stacks and that idea, um, and then have the opportunity to adjust their programs so they're learning skills related to personal training and working with people with disabilities. Uh, and my role in that is just as a certified personal trainer through CSEP, I oversee some of the intakes for new participants, right, their initial programs, um, and then have TA'd courses where I'm supporting the students in their learning for that that content. So it's a great way to still be involved in the community and get a little bit more hands-on experience yeah, yeah. While, while studying. Well, that's great that you'd heard about it before coming to Queens. I didn't realize it had gone that far. So <laughs> I always knew it was a great program, but I didn't realize uh, that was a big draw as well to come to Queens. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating program there. Um, and then your, what's this, your also a teaching fellow, not just a teaching assistant, a teaching fellow, you know, teaching an undergrad seminar on global sport and disability. So that really is in your wheelhouse, isn't it, to the you know, disability sports? Yeah, I was very pleased to be asked to teach uh, this semester. Uh, so it's a class that I guess has previously been offered at the Bader International Center. Study Center, ah, okay. um, but it's never been taught here on the Queen's main campus before. Uh, so it's been a fun opportunity to practice course design, develop my own syllabus, and yeah, share my passion and excitement for parasport with students, talking about things like classification, Paralympics, Special Olympics, really running the gamut of what parasport looks like and what it could look like. Right. So, so what made you get into working or even studying parasport? Mm -hmm. I actually did my undergraduate degree at a college in Victoria, BC, Camosun College. Um, and so since it was an applied program, we had a lot of volunteer hours built into some of the courses right. that we took. Right. So it was through that that I got involved with an adaptive strength and conditioning program. 
and then was very lucky. One of my professors was the high performance director for Wheelchair Rugby Canada at the time. So I was able to connect with a bunch of wheelchair rugby athletes, got involved playing wheelchair basketball, and it really just took off from there. One thing led to another, and it ended up being the pathway I think that I was meant to take. You could see your potential. Yeah. <laughs> it's really nice to see that work, you know, think, uh, it's kind of like that aha moment. Yeah, I, I think this is fascinating. I want to know more and I want to contribute and, and continue on that way. So that, that's awesome. So, so what is your end goal? To continue with research or to do more work with or actually get to work with, say, our uh, national teams or... Uh, yeah, I think some sort of mix uh, would be ideal. I flip-flop back and forth. I think when I started my master's, I thought that would be the end of my road in academia and I'd go and work for a team. Um, and then I decided to stay on for my PhD. So I obviously have that strong interest in research as well and in teaching and some combination where I'm able to both work hands-on with athletes or within the sports system, but also do something that's a little bit more teaching focused or research focused would bridge both my interests. What that looks like, I'm open to ideas. So well, it'd be we'll interesting too on. with, you know, some of the local governments, you know, what are they trying to do with people within their own communities with disabilities to get them more involved? So I could see you're working in one of those and sort of creating programs and, and things that that would certainly go a long way to help, I'm sure. And or or continuing the research and that saying now you've done the classification part. Now what else can I do to increase participation within individual smaller communities and, and then sort of build up? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of possibilities. So I'm excited to just keep putting myself out there when opportunities come up and see see what sticks. Really, that's how I got here. So it seems to be working for me. Well, that's good. Well, any, anyone who wants to know about the classification system, they know to come to you, Janet, because <laughs> you'll know it all. And I, and I guess from all different um, sports as well, which is intriguing. Most people sort of concentrate on one particular area, but uh, you've got the whole gamut there, which is good. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to throw this in because I just have to. You're already, you're also a mum to a dog. What's the name of your dog? Yes, uh, Nessie. I named her after the Loch Ness monster, and I joke that she is a monster. So I really got and what I asked for. She's pretty cute. I saw a photo. She's pretty <laughs> cute. <laughs> yes, in the School of Graduate Studies here, we we kind of like our pets, <laughs> and I think they've been even more important over this past two years with the pandemic sort of keeping us all in keeping us all sane yeah which is good so janet thank you that was awesome i hope you enjoyed coming on the show but i do appreciate you sort of explain to us about how classification works in para sport because i think we'll have a better appreciation moving forward of um how the different sports are split up as you said, so we understand uh, how they can make it as fair as possible along the way. So Mm -hmm. I do appreciate you coming on and talking more about that. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Good. Time just flies, doesn't it? Just flies. (laughs) So so that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray.
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.